Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. This is an interview episode in which I speak to Professor Kara Cooney. Kara, or Kathleen Cooney, is a professor of Egyptian art and architecture at the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. She is also the chair of the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures at UCLA, and is active in both the academic and public archaeological communities. Professor Cooney specializes in several historical fields. Most notably, she investigates funerary practices in ancient Egyptian society. Under this umbrella, she examines funerary crafts and craftworking, tomb building, tomb robbery and reuse of sacred spaces, artistic trends, reception history, and patterns of change in ancient tastes. Kara also studies socio-economic systems and the structure of ancient Egyptian society. This is a small drop in the bucket of her work, but it is a major part of her academic research. Kara Cooney also works in the public field and is a well-known figure in television documentaries. She has published two trade books, one about Hatshepsut, called The Woman Who Would Be King, and one about Egyptian royal women, called When Women Ruled the World. Both books are available now, and you will find links in the episode description. I sat down with Professor Cooney to discuss a few things in Egypt's new kingdom. Firstly, we discussed funerary practices and crafts, and answered the age-old question, how much does an ancient Egyptian coffin cost? Then we moved into the reign of Hatshepsut specifically, and the impact she had on 18th dynasty royal power. Finally, we dove into questions about ancient Egyptian monarchy, and its relationship to organized crime. We also asked if Kara Cooney could answer one question from ancient Egypt, what would it be? The interview jumped around a bit, but it breaks down into these three distinct sections. To keep everything smooth, I have divided the interview up into three separate parts. They are releasing one after the other, and I will also release the full version in one big episode for those who want it in one go. That's enough from me, on with the interview. Allow me to introduce Professor Kara Cooney. All right, so good morning, uh, Professor Cooney. Thank you very much for joining us on the History of Egypt podcast, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. How are things in Los Angeles? Are you doing all right? Uh, yeah, everything's great. It's um, beautiful and sunny outside of my office window, and we are all uh, safer at home, our governor and mayor tells us, and I am teaching all of my classes via Zoom. And mm. for the graduate class, that's been a joy because I'm doing a Dero Medina seminar and we have Dr. Cedric Gobey taking part every week. And mm. so whenever you have a question about Dero Medina, to have the lead archaeologist of the site of Dero Medina 
on the phone on the zoom call it's um it's amazing so for Absolutely. the grad seminar it's great for the undergrad seminar of 200 <laughs> it's a little more unwieldy but we we make it work and i emote to a tiny camera in my computer as so many other computers are doing all around the world that's exciting that's that's a very good uh, approach that's a very cool approach i like that that's great so uh professor cooney cara supposing you were at a cocktail party someone asked you about your work you know that dreaded question what would be your elevator pitch of the material that you specifically research and the questions you investigate well i'd have to pause and tell them that there are two of me that i'm a bit schizophrenic as a educator academic communicator and that i have two streams of research one that i write under the name of kathleen m cooney that is um highly data-based and uh, text-based and social history examinations. And that would be my work on coffin reuse, my work on craftsmanship, apprenticeship, um, mm. more art historical work. And then the other persona, the other side of me, I write under the name Kara Cooney, which is what everyone calls me, what my mother calls me, um, even mm. though my birth certificate has Kathleen on it. And there, that's where I put my more... Um, risky, <laughs> um, non-academic necessarily, though all grounded in academic work, um, uh, pieces. And so that would be my trade books, like The Woman Who Would Be King and mm -hmm. uh, When Women Ruled the World. But I think everything shares all of my work. So going back to your question, right? Mm -hmm. Going back to your question of the elevator pitch of what my work is about. I think a lot of my work starts with from an intuitive space from um, working with the limited data that we have, but trying to create uh, as full a picture as we can in the most responsible way, but not getting bogged down in the weeds and not um, arguing with colleagues over names and dates and facts, mm -hmm. but more coming up above those weeds and asking why we should care at all and what it mm -hmm. says about us and trying to find more of an interchange of communication between the past and the present. And mm. that's where I tend to go the most. Okay. So perhaps broadly, would you say that you, the, the root interest or the root questions you investigate are questions of humanity, human behavior, and depending on the context, you express them in perhaps two different languages and personalities. I can almost sum it up in one word, how I like to approach humanity, and that is in terms of systems. Hmm. Not a very sexy word, systems, but instead- oh, it's on this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, a student asked me today in the discussion for that big 200 person class, well, was Ramses II just insecure? And that's why he built so many statues. And I'm like, no, you don't, that's not the way I, he may have been, it's possible, hmm. he may not have been, he may hmm. have been, um, completely non-insecure, you know, confident in every which way. But there's this mm -hmm. question to ask, and it's not a useful way of looking at society. I like to look at social systems. Mm -hmm. So it's more useful to then ask what kind of a social system would demand or allow that Ramses II place so many colossal statues all around Egypt in the places, that, in the temple context that he did. And mm -hmm. when you ask that, then you start to approach a picture of Ramses II that's not based on 
our description of the temple of Abu Simbel and he's the first one to divinize himself. And what does that even mean? And we go through all of the right. you know, discussions in the, the tomb of his sons and which son became king and blah, blah, blah. How many years in the said festivals? And you can <laughs> do all of that. You can do it and we should do it. But isn't it more interesting to then ask, well, it's not that he's insecure, but these statues get him something and from whom? And why does he need to communicate with more people than, than the kings before him, than the 18th dynasty kings communicated with? Why, why does he need to com communicate with a broader society and what does that mean? And then you start to approach an understanding of the Ramesid period as one of royal populism, which I had never thought about until I started um, working on Ramses II for an article I'm doing um, and, and, and teaching this class. And now I'm thinking, huh, if you look at it in that way, it's not about Ramses and how he feels or insecure or confident. It's about the social system that he is trying to key into. And then mm -hmm. it becomes populism and how he tries to sow division within society and pit one part against another, how he tries to create an elite replacement and work towards the, the social mobility of the military and reward them while taking down mm -hmm. other people. Um, and, and then it becomes a much more interesting question for me, um, mm -hmm. rather than the way these things have, have been foc focused upon. So then everything can be answered with systems. I teach mm -hmm. another class on women in power in the ancient world at UCLA. And, you know, you'll always hit the part. And it's not just Egypt. I do Greece and Mesopotamia, China, the Levant, um, uh, Persia and um, Rome. And mm. and when we're in the China part and you're talking about female oh, in India too, you, India or China, you have these ideas of infanticide of the female. And it, mm. you know, people aren't doing this, I tell my students, because, you know, they're evil people who just like boys. When you look at why people do things like that, you you want to approach it from the system. And if the system is so patriarchal that economic uh, safety is only afforded through having many sons, then you will do as a family anything that you need to create that that less anxious, that more risk averse place for you and your family, even if that means killing a daughter again and again. Mm -hmm. And having even an, uh, an entire population that's imbalanced towards sons. And so I just think, now, and as I get older in my scholarship, I'm much more about the big picture, the long durée, the systems than I am about the individuals. Now, that's not to say that I'm not super interested in biography at the same time. I love mm -hmm. learning about people's lives and all of the trials and tribulations that they had. But the way that I focus on an individual's life is through their system. And thus, I think I'm, I, I get different things out of it than traditional Egyptology might. Part two. With our introduction out of the way, Professor Cooney and I now move into the meat of things. We answer the age-old question, how much did an ancient Egyptian coffin cost? So narrowing the focus very slightly from that you've you've researched many aspects of egyptian social history uh, particularly relating to craft working and funerary culture in the new kingdom hypothetically for an for an ancient person living in the social system of say thebes during the late new kingdom someone looking ahead to the the end of their life their eventual burial along some on some basic informational lines how much 
say, would a decent quality painted coffin cost an individual? And how long might these things take to prepare? Yeah, a coffin can range in price. Your average coffin is going to cost about 30 debon, each debon equal to about 91 grams of copper. And hmm. that means nothing to us. We don't bring copper to the market. We don't even bring coins to the market anymore. So that can be compared to um, 30 debon, could be compared to um, a young cow. It could be compared hmm. to five shirts. Um, hand-woven mm. shirts, of course. We don't get to go to the shop and buy these things. People are hand-weaving mm. in their homes. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, five shirts, given how much time it must have taken to weave the linen for each of those shirts, that's, and that's the average price. And you can certainly go up from there to a coffin that costs 200 um, debon for just the one coffin. I'm not including the entire set. And mm. so the... The coffin price itself makes you understand that very few people could afford these things. And it's funny, I work on price and value and social hierarchies, but as a dissertation writing grad student, it, it came as a shock to me to think that most ancient Egyptians wouldn't have had access to a coffin. And mm -hmm. um, that it really it's 5% or less. And those lower elites at the lower uh, stratum of that 5%, could afford a coffin that was quite awful to behold. And there are a few of those left in, in museums around the world or that show up on excavation sites. And when you see coffins that are um, so ugly <laughs> and of such low quality wood and painting and everything, it fills me with great joy because then I can see people in the lower part of society, elite society, trying to emulate what's higher up. And then mm. I think about all of the people, the 95% of people who couldn't participate at all, who had a different, must have had a different way of reifying their death anxieties. They couldn't use mm. the coffin to contain the deceased and transform them into Osiris or Ray, not in that way. They had palm mm. rib matting, they had other things. They would often bury the dead in a fetal position, not laid out, um, even though all of the rich were laid out. And this would happen in the New Kingdom and third intermediate period and beyond, to think of all that we've missed, all of the mm. funerary culture and the ways of burying the dead that we can only see in um, newly dug sites because those, um, because so the excavators of the last hundred years have ignored so much of that material, unless it's very old, like the pre-dynastic. Um, mm. We've lost a lot. To think of what we have lost is, um, it, it can be rather um, difficult for the archeologist but it's, it's amazing to me how often we tell the story of the Egyptian preparation for burial uncritically through the lens of the rich without any understanding mm. of what we're doing. And then mm. I think, oh my goodness, look at society today and how often we uncritically tell a story through the lens of the haves versus the have-nots. And that is the way things run. And um, mm. so the, yes, the, the, I always look at... Um, even funerary culture and preparation for it through uh, a social history lens. So I'm in many ways more interested in the living than I am in the dead. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So speaking of the living, how, how did people's attitudes towards the dead, towards burials and to the, the accessories that went along with that for uh, poor and for non-poor, 
How did these sort of things change over the New Kingdom? Did practices or fashions shift? And what evidence do we have for this? There's huge shifts, and it's uh, it's there before our eyes in all of the excavations in a way that's so clear um, when you take the long durée approach, when you take a deep time approach. Um, it's not even deep time. It's just a, a long duration of time, a good 300 years as you go from 7th, 17th dynasty burials in Thebes to early 22nd or 23rd or 24th dynasty burials in Thebes. Um, know what I'm saying in Thebes because the preservation of this wood and of all of this material is largely a southern phenomenon. There are mm-hmm. some coffins preserved from Tel Alamarna or from Saqqara or from some Delta places, but not like they are in Thebes and not with the mm-hmm. consolidated um, material quality that they are in Thebes. Mm-hmm. And so it's this is very much a southern Egyptian question. Um, mm-hmm. So Using that Theban material, you can see, one, that society broadens through time, that more people can participate towards the third intermediate period and then can participate on the 17th dynasty end. So there is a broadening of society, which is very interesting in and of itself. More people are there as decision makers, movers and shakers in in the Theban society. Um, More people are getting paid a wage and, and have something to say. Um, then the other thing, the other trend that you see is of display. Display stays constant throughout. Families want to put their best foot forward. They want to show what they're able to produce, wealthy families. And Mm. that never stops. Even when people can't get access to wood to make a coffin in the 21st dynasty or starting in the mid 20th dynasty, they will reuse the coffin of their ancestors from a family crypt that they own legally, bring it to the craftsman and have it updated because that need for display is so important. So even when there is an economic downturn, social competition and display drives a continuous production of coffins. It does not ever stop, which is interesting. It makes me think of human-induced climate change. And people saying, you know, we should really use uh, fossil fuels yet less. And despite all of that, because of the system we have in place, because of how many people benefit from it, even though we know long term we're walking towards a cliff or running, um, we continue to consume because of how much we get in in the here and now. People don't like to change and they only change when they absolutely have to change. There's no other recourse. They so often find another way. And then Mm. the third trend I would notice, and there are many other trends, but the third big trend is one of conspicuous consumption of commodities that anyone would want to use towards a trend of conspicuous consumption of commodities in a more defensive manner. What I mean by that is in dynasties 17 and 18, and mainly 18 when you have the money to do this, people, rich people, are burying themselves with all kinds of things like shirts and sheets and blankets and beds and tables and chairs and wigs and unguents and makeup. And that's in addition to the coffins and the canopic jars and all of that paraphernalia for death with the coffin at the center. So all of this stuff. And then as the, the new kingdom starts to go down this downward spiral and things start to fail and tombs are open and these commodities are pulled out, the Egyptian Thebans, and it must have been happening in Saqqara and other places in the world, start to think about their burials in a much more defensive fashion. And 
they they then resist the urge for the conspicuous consumption of stuff that others would love to have and towards the conspicuous consumption of stuff that is problematic to take, problematic to reuse. If you go into someone's tomb and you don't touch their coffin, but you take all this nice big stack of woven linen sheets, then you're like, mm. well, they don't need the sheets. I can tell the dead people aren't using it. Whatever, those silly people, I'm taking the sheets. And the dead person, mm. like, sorry, dead person, all good, we're fine. But in the, as um, time goes on, so people are like, fine, I'm not going to bury myself with sheets. I'm just going to bury myself with the coffin, with the, mm. the nested coffin set, with the canopic jars, with all of the, the things that you need for death. And I am dispensing with all of that daily life material. You actually see it in tomb depictions at the same time, interestingly. You see in the tomb chapel, above which all of this stuff is buried in an 18th dynasty tomb, images of weeping, images of potting, images of metallurgy, all of these things. People want to consume mm. that and display that. By the time you get to the Ramesid period, 19th and 20th dynasties, people are like, no, we're not doing that anymore. It's not helpful. And everyone's taken my stuff or because I'm the one that took it. So then they start to defensively think, I am going to focus on the commodities that are harder to take. And so in the 19th dynasty, they're tricking out their coffins, they're gilding their coffins. Mummification mm. is arguably better in dynasty 19. And you have an explosion of different kinds of objects that are much more religiously purposed. And so mm. when the crisis really hits in dynasty 20, mid-dynasty 20, but it could have hit earlier for, for many people, and people are like, oh, my God, we need the wood to bury grandma, you know, otherwise she's not going to be transformed. And what do we do? What will people think? Um, then they'll, they'll even reuse those religiously functional commodities and go for the coffins, go for um, canopic jars, reuse things that, that that had a kind of force field around them, a social force field, because people don't want to reuse something that was meant for the dead that may have have the detritus of, of the dead body on it. And so mm -hmm. they, they pull away from that. By the time the crisis gets really bad in Dynasty 21, this is just normal. It's so normal to reuse a coffin that in some coffins, there's one coffin in the Vatican and another coffin in the Met that probably are a mother-daughter reuse. Um, mm. The mother had the coffin and the daughter keeps the mother's name on there and, and then mm. put her name over the varnish. You can prove it in the Met because there's a papyrus in association with it that names them both and their relationship <laughs> to each other. The coffin in the Vatican only has two strange Libyan names that helps me to circumstantially suspect that these women were related to each other. And the retention of one name was not scribal error. These are people doing something purposefully. So the the trends are are there for how people deal with burial, but isn't it great? It's not just burial. It's everything. It is the way people, rich people had themselves buried, but it is reflective of so much more within Egyptian society, what the economic health of the place was, how many people were uh, integrated into government systems, how people displayed to make their mark in um, a particular time and place. And the only thing that is constant within that changing um, data set is the need for the rich people to display. And it's something that still hasn't changed in many ways. We need to 
see and touch the dead as they go into the ground. And as we're here in this coronavirus pandemic and so many people are losing family members and they are buried without anyone being there or cremated mm -hmm. without anyone having said goodbye. These are things that we find very um, problematic, we human beings. But we do like to put on a good show and display and show how important our family members are. And mm -hmm. that, so that even the Quran, when it says, um, probably in reaction to many of these polytheistic traditions of using death ceremonies to, to put a family up on a pedestal, even in the Quran, when it says, you know, you should, the, everyone rich and poor is buried simply three days right into the earth. No, nothing else. Then you'll go to Cairo or you'll go to, you'll go to Istanbul or you'll go anywhere where Islam is, has been practiced for centuries and you'll see these grand burials and you think, well, mm. this is a cheat. And it is a cheat. The person <laughs> is still put into the ground directly into the earth. So they did it, but it's mm. got all this marble and beautiful stuff all around it. And, mm. um, yeah, so we, we don't like to give up these these methods of display. We find the loopholes in the system. Always do. <laughs> you have to be in the ground in three days, but there's nothing of nothing that stops you from building a mausoleum three years ahead. Yeah. yeah. Mm. My conversation with Kara continues after the break. First, we have to get that automated advertising out of the way. See you in a moment. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Part 3. Finally, we move into the realm of craftsmanship. Specifically, how did an ancient coffin maker learn their trade? So, <clears throat> looking at the, the actual production of these objects, you know, for every, for every coffin there is a maker, someone who has to carve and decorate and produce this thing. Artisans obviously didn't appear fully formed and skilled out of nothing. They went through apprentice, apprenticeships with many stages of learning. And this is something that you, you have also researched. What evidence do we have for ancient Egyptian apprentices specifically? Hardly any. Um, it's, it's really tricky to study something like this. You're not going to find a school. You're not going to find even um, clearly marked father-son pairings. Mm. In terms of craftsmanship, there are two main places to really focus your study. And that is either Tel El Amarna or it is Dir Medina. And mm. those two places are invaluable um, uh, capsule cities. One, Dir Medina a manufactured non-organic village in the desert that shouldn't exist and that water has to be brought to physically. Um, mm. Thus that desert place, um, it, it caps it and, and uh, secures it for us to study. And Amarna, this manufactured city built from the ground up, 17, not, less than a, about a 10 year history, right? And then they abandon it and, and it's capped and, and sealed for mm -hmm. us to study. So using those two places, 
the documentation, even though there are tons of Ostrica that talk about the prices of different commodities, um, the the crew at Dero Medina, uh, an Ostracon, by the way, is a is a limestone flake or a potsherd flake with um, text or image on it. And these Ostrica tell us all kinds of things about craftsmanship, about how much things cost, about who's doing work, who the work is for, whether the work is state employment or private sector employment, arguably, though that's a tricky question. But mm. nowhere do you see uh, anybody talking about training their son in, in their profession. You do see genealogically that sons can often follow fathers and you can follow the genealogy at Daryl Medina and see how people are moving into the crew to, to build and decorate these tombs in the Valley of the Kings and Valley of the Queens. But how much mm. this was a question of status and payoffs versus skill level is very debatable. So mm. you're left with, with all kinds of weird circumstantial arguments that you have to try to make from what's left behind. And I'll give you two little things that I have used to try to understand apprenticeship, two pieces of data. One is the coffin of Sinejim, today in the Cairo Museum, found in Theban tomb one, uh, the only intact Ramesid tomb uh, from, from Egypt, Theban, of course. And that, that coffin of Sinejim has beautiful decoration on one side with the text in blue ink. And then on the other side, on the coffin uh, case side, that blue is inexpertly applied to the coffin. It's almost like the apprentice did it, somebody who didn't know what they were doing. And the, the hieroglyphs just look really messy and it doesn't look very nice. And you can look at that coffin and you can just circumstantially guess this is a, a master and apprentice situation. And they actually let the apprentice keep his hand, his inexpert hand of lower value on the mm -hmm. coffin and that everyone saw that displayed and that that was okay. That in some cases that inexpert hand could was allowed to be um, uh, kept on a given piece. You don't see it very often. And you wonder if it, was, if it was a conscious choice because most other coffins that we have preserved have a more um, a higher quality hand and a more rigorous eye to consistency on a piece. And so it's, it's interesting that that, was, that that stood. Maybe because they're craftsmen, this Sinejim family, a family of craftsmen, Maybe they allowed uh, one of the apprentices in their family, allowed his hand to stay on that coffin. It's completely possible that the father's like, no, I want it. I love it. It stays. Who knows? We have no idea. Mm. Um, that's an interesting point. And so you can see it, but you don't know the details. Um, and then there's uh, some of the work that I've done on figural ostraca. These, these limestone flakes and potsherds that have figures on them rather than text or figures in addition to text. And they can be anything. They can be sketches of a monkey climbing a tree or a pharaoh's profile, or some. it can be something a little more formal, a sketch of, of, of a kind of stela of somebody worshiping a god or goddess with names attached to it. Um, and these figured ostraca, you know, we Egyptologists, we Westerners, uh, most of us, have tried to find a, a use, a common use for these figured ostracans to say, oh, these pieces are trial pieces for a tomb. And people have looked and they're like, no, that doesn't really work. What's, what you see mm -hmm. in the Valley of the Kings is very different from what's depicted on these figural ostraca or what you see depicted in the tomb chapels or burial chambers 
that are painted of Daryl Medina Workman, also very different. So there's not an mm. overlap. It's not a trial piece. It doesn't really work. And then some mm. of these sketches are very unusual. A dancing woman. Um, mm. Some of them are masterful and extraordinary, and some of them are really ugly. And so <laughs> you you get an idea of how this works. And instead of calling it a an apprenticeship system, I I like to call it a community of practice which is not something that I've come up with. This is a, a system developed by Lave and Wenger, I think, are the, the uh, anthropologists or cognitive scientists who have developed this idea that if you have a community and there's a shared practice in that community, then everyone is in this community of practice and they're all competing and cooperating and working with each other and showing off and hiding and doing all of the things mm -hmm. you would do in a community of practice. And so while... It's easy for us to think of a da Vinci workshop, master, apprentice kind of system, because that's what we have in our Western brains. When you look at mm. the way people actually teach people how to do something, how a mother might teach her daughters to bake bread, it's always her daughters, right? Um, whatever we want it to be. Maybe there are young sons around, but maybe he's being apprenticed in a different way. But when she's doing that, and the grandmother's there, maybe the aunt's there, it is a community of practice that that girl is brought into for something mm. bed brick, bread baking that demands a tremendous amount of skill. I can't break big bread at all. It's a disaster. And I'm not even trying despite coronavirus. But, um, <laughs> but you know, you, you have this constant practice going on that is training you. And I think very much the same thing was going on at Daryl Medina, but not in the way we expect, not where you sit children down again during this coronavirus pandemic and you see what homeschooling is and what the teachers give you in another worksheet another worksheet i have a 10 year old and god's help us um <laughs> this kind of rote re repetition this way we think of it that is proper learning mm -hmm. um there are many ways of learning how to do something and just including your child in your life and having that child be a part of your actual work um mm -hmm. it would probably be better for most of the kids who are at home right now than what we're at than all those mm -hmm. stupid worksheets we're making them do but we can't let go of that idea that that's what real education is but these mm -hmm. ostrica these figured ostrica give a bit of an idea that everyone was constantly practicing everyone was constantly messing with their figures everyone was showing off some of them had amazing hands the master is painting some of them are just like oh my goodness what is that and it's some kid who's showing what he can do and he's got his hands on an ostracon and everyone's like, ha ha cute. And then he throws it down. Running up and like, mummy, mummy, look what I drew. Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe. Yeah. Um, or maybe they're all up in the huts over by the Valley of the Kings and everyone's hanging out overnight. They're not going to go back. Guards don't want to let him go yeah. back something. So they're all just sketching and laughing and there's a pornographic one. And there's a, mm. you know, one of the monkey climbing the trees because they miss the trees and they live out in the desert. But I mm. see it in a much more free form way much more organic, much more messy than, than we like to see. And I think that's mm. one of the reasons we haven't identified schools because the schools don't exist in the way that we think they do. They're everywhere and everyone's doing it. So I have a very long answer to your question. Model, aren't we? Yeah. Yep. That's interesting. And off, off the record, um, that community of practice thing, did you say it was Lave and Winger? Mm-hmm. That sounds fascinating because my my PhD research is on socioeconomics of Dynasty 18, so I need to find that. That's a very interesting idea. Thank you. You don't happen to have the reference to you. I do, and I have it somewhere in this office. Um, 
and I'll make sure that where is it or is it at work? Um, I'll send it to you though. I'll be oh there it is. Here it is. I knew to look for the yellow. Um, yeah. Is it backwards or can you see it? Situated learning. Okay, just hopefully my library has that. But situated learning. I'll just take a quick screenshot of that actually. That's useful. That's that's an excellent little thing. Thank you very much. A lot of my grad students find this extraordinarily useful and it can work for anything. So if you're talking, hmm. I, I have um, one graduate student finishing right now, Danny Candelora, who's working on military communities of practice. And then you have different military communities of practice coming into contact with one another, like 11 chariot based, um, more competitive uh, community of military practice coming into contact with an infantry based um, non-chariot, less competitive, more draft labor kind of community of practice. And when those two come together, you get some very interesting um, results. Yeah, okay. That's that's interesting because, yes, we're very, in the West at least today, we are very stuck in a Victorian model of education. But yes, as you're right, you know, in the basic structures of human society, this is a very good way to teach your children is just have them watch, have them test it alongside you or do it. Even if it's just to keep, keep them busy and stop them nagging you. Yeah, there's less beating, there's less cajoling, there's less um, of a demand that they do something that they don't want to do. Those kids want to be with you and do something with you. And um, it's it's interesting to see how um, I think we have so much of this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. At this point in the conversation, Professor Cooney and I move to the reign of Hatshepsut. You will find that in the next interview episode, releasing very shortly. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. Take care. inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.